A warning, this episode features dramatizations and discussions of violent death and animal mutilation. Listener discretion is advised, especially for listeners under 13. Something to note, the story you're about to hear is not a direct retelling of any single myth about the chupacabra. Today's episode combines elements from a number of legends and stories about this Caribbean vampire-like creature for dramatic effect. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. You're listening to Mythical Monsters. Every week, we explore the legends behind some of the most infamous creatures to have ever emerged from the human mind. In telling the stories of these remarkable beasts, we hope to expose the fears and anxieties that drove their creation. Because no matter how strange or frightening, every beast is a reflection of ourselves. Last week, we talked about the Thunderbird, a majestic creature from the mythologies of North American indigenous peoples, with the power to shoot lightning from its eyes and create peals of thunder with a flap of its wings. The Thunderbird was a reminder of the awesome and terrifying power of the natural world. Today, we'll be exploring the legend of the Chupacabra, a reptilian predator with a thirst for blood. It's an unusual creature for this show, as stories about the chupacabra have only been around since the mid-1990s. Even so, in the past 25 years, the chupacabra has managed to become one of the most widely recognized imaginary creatures on the planet. As always, you can find every episode of Mythical Monsters for free on Spotify, along with all the other ParCast originals. We'll explore the origins of El Chupacabra after this. In the summer of 1995, terror gripped the community of Canovanas, a small town just outside of San Juan, Puerto Rico. For weeks, farmers had been finding their livestock dead, drained of blood, and with two large puncture marks in their necks. Though no one had caught sight of the culprit behind the mysterious attacks, rumors began to circulate that the predator had escaped from a secret U.S. military base in the nearby El Junque forest. The press began reporting on the phenomenon, and eventually the mysterious culprit was given a name. Chupacabra comes from the Spanish words chupar, meaning to suck, and cabra, meaning goat, so it literally translates as goat sucker. The fact that the vampiric creature is named after its choice of prey and method of feeding is significant, because at first, that was all anyone knew about it. Farmers were desperate to stop the attacks on their livestock, and the mayor of Canovanas even formed a citizen militia tasked with finding and capturing the beast. Still, it would be months before anyone laid eyes on the creature itself. The first actual sighting of the chupacabra came in August of 1995. A woman named Madeline Tolentino was at her house in Canovanas when she looked out her window and saw an otherworldly creature. 
Madeline Tolentino's chupacabra was a large reptilian animal, around three or four feet tall, with spikes running up its spine. Its eyes were large, dark, and bulbous, with an almost extraterrestrial quality. It had no ears or nose. Slender arms ended in long, human-like fingers, and it had a set of distinctive fangs that would clearly be useful in draining the blood of livestock and small household pets. Today, when people hear the name Chupacabra, they still picture the animal Madeline Tolentino described 25 years ago, though additional sightings have led to minor changes, such as lethal claws that can tear through flesh. While the image is unnerving in its own right, the true terror of El Chupacabra comes from the way it feeds off not just livestock, but entire communities. At first, it takes one animal, then three, then ten. Bit by bit, it drains a town, or a farm, of every last resource, until there's nothing left. Greg's footsteps echoed down the long, empty hallway. There was something unnerving about the silent underground corridors, with their lines of featureless steel doors. Of course, it was what was behind those doors that made him uneasy. He wasn't supposed to be doing his rounds alone, but his partner Georgia had been absent for almost five days now. For all he knew, it might be weeks before she came back. Greg was anxious to visit Subject 137. Going this long without any data could do irreparable damage to the integrity of the experiment. He'd asked again and again for a replacement, but the higher-ups just kept telling him to wait until Georgia came back. They were a bunch of empty-headed army bureaucrats. They didn't care about scientific advancement. The only thing that mattered to them was keeping the project quiet and getting results. Greg looked nervously over his shoulder. He took hold of the crank that opened the reinforced steel door. Greg heaved the door open and stepped into the eerily quiet laboratory. It was a large, low-ceilinged room with an enormous metal cage sitting at the far end. Greg glanced back nervously at the heavy door. Security protocols required him to close and lock it before even going near the cage. But then he wouldn't be able to hear if there was anyone else in the hallway. Greg knew that worrying about the letter of the law was a bit silly, considering that he could get fired just for being in the lab. But he had always been a rule follower at heart. So he shut the door, taking care that it was properly sealed, before turning to face the cage. The metal structure was covered in electrified barbed wire, and a smaller glass enclosure sat in its center. The creature lying within was partially obscured by the wire and the mesh of the outer cage, but Greg could tell that it was watching him. Of everything he had seen in the sterile white rooms of this facility, nothing unnerved him quite like Subject 137. Its cracked skin was a dull gray and bare, aside from a few scattered patches of wiry black hair. A line of spikes sprouted from its back. The protrusions resembled large porcupine quills, but they were coated in a thick, mucus-like substance. 
But the most unpleasant thing about Subject 137 was its wide, bulbous eyes. They had no pupils or irises, but only faint red dots set far back in the glassy black orbs. Greg entered a code into the keypad on the outside of the metal cage. The door to the glass enclosure slid open. Still mostly obscured, the creature pushed itself up, rising onto its hind legs. There was something deeply unsettling about the way it walked. Its movements seemed disjointed, almost robotic. Greg's heart pounded in his chest as Subject 137 stepped out of the glass enclosure. He tried to remind himself that there was still a metal cage, barbed wire, and 20,000 volts of electricity standing between him and it. He turned to one of the workbenches along the wall and set about preparing the sedative solution. As he picked up one of the glass vials, he noticed that the liquid inside was shaking. An instant later, he became aware that the whole room was trembling slightly. He froze. It was an earthquake. The lights flickered and went out, replaced by the eerie red glow of the emergency lighting. Greg cursed under his breath. Earthquake protocols required the guards to check each room to ensure that the cages were secure. There wasn't time to get the creature back into the enclosure. He would have to come back later with a tranquilizer gun. For now, all that mattered was getting out before the guards arrived. Greg hurried to the exit and turned the wheel to open the door. Just as he heaved it open, he heard the sound of wires being torn from the wall behind him and whirled around to face the cage. Up until a few minutes ago, the metal fencing had carried enough electricity to kill an elephant. Now that the main power was down, it was little more than chicken wire. Somehow, the creature had understood that when the lights went off, so did the electricity. Subject 137 was much more intelligent than they had realized. It had torn a hole in the wire, and now... It was stepping out of the cage. Greg screamed as Subject 137 vaulted toward him, crossing the room in an instant. It sank its fangs into his neck while tearing at his throat with curved yellow claws. Greg's scream stopped short as it hurled his larynx across the room. He tumbled to the floor, blood pouring from the gaping hole in his throat. As his vision clouded, the last thing he saw was Subject 137 escaping through the open doorway. The legend of the chupacabra is deeply entwined with the political landscape of Central America and the Caribbean. The 1990s were a time of intense upheaval for this region, and much of that disturbance was a direct result of American economic policies. The fact that the chupacabra was rumored to have escaped from an American military facility is no coincidence. The U.S. has always had a complicated and contentious relationship with Puerto Rico. The country is a commonwealth of the United States. This means that though Puerto Ricans are considered American citizens, they can't vote in presidential races or elect a voting member of Congress. In fact, they're among those who have the fewest constitutional rights in the nation. 
When Puerto Rico first became a commonwealth, the new status offered unprecedented economic advancement. Through the 50s and 60s, American factories poured into the island, where manufacturers could underpay workers while still reaping the benefits of producing goods that were made in the USA. As American policies contributed to a near collapse of Puerto Rico's farms, the glut of new factory jobs helped the island to prosper economically. All this changed with the 1994 passage of NAFTA. The North American Free Trade Agreement meant that it could now be cheaper for U.S. factory production to be exported to Mexico. The label of Made in the USA did not matter so much when it was competing with the much lower price of goods produced in Mexico. Puerto Ricans were left without the agriculture that had once sustained them and the manufacturing jobs that they had relied on for decades. In the summer of 1995, an undercurrent of frustration and economic anxiety ran through the same towns and suburbs where the chupacabra found its victims. People who had already lost their livelihood were now losing the chickens, goats, and cows that had provided them with crucial sources of extra income. American trade policy had drained the economic resources of the island, so it seemed perfectly reasonable that the chupacabra itself was also a creation of the U.S. government. As sightings proliferated around the island, so did the conspiracy theories about American involvement. A Puerto Rican janitor at a U.S. Army base in San Juan claimed military officers were hiding the frozen body of a dead chupacabra, some rumors maintained that the chupacabra was the consequence of American contact with extraterrestrials. There was an increase in UFO sightings around U.S. military bases. The conspiracies surrounding the attacks grew out of the economic and cultural tensions that gripped Puerto Rico. In fact, some officials attributed sightings of El Chupacabra to a troop of imported rhesus monkeys that had escaped from a scientific testing facility. If Americans had been careless enough to introduce a species from another continent, who was to say they wouldn't do it with a species from another planet? The U.S. government had already drained the island's economic lifeblood. To many Puerto Rican citizens, it seemed fitting that the same government had created the creature now draining their literal blood. Hector awoke to the sound of screams. At first he thought they were human, but as he sat up and reached for his glasses, he recognized the familiar bleats and moans. He leapt out of bed and ran for the front of the house. The screen door slammed behind him as he dashed into the yard and came to a stumbling halt in front of the decrepit old goat barn. The weathered wooden door was hanging from one hinge. Hector could hear the goats scrambling around inside. He hesitated. Underneath the screaming, he could hear another, quieter sound, a bit like someone sloppily eating a mango. He considered going back inside for a hatchet and a flashlight, but there wasn't time. Every minute he wasted might mean losing another goat. He grabbed a rusty shovel sitting against the side of the barn and pushed the door open. Hector could see the shadows of goats scrambling around, but he couldn't make out any details. He wrinkled his nose. The room was filled with the sulfurous scent of rotten eggs. He gripped the shovel and took a hesitant step into the barn. 
Just then, a cloud drifted away from the moon and a beam of silvery light shone in through the window. Hector's eyes widened in terror. The goats had been penned in by a creature that was almost as tall as he was. Its skin was a dull gray, and a line of black spikes ran along its back. The thing turned around, and Hector saw that it was clutching a goat in its dirty yellow claws. As it retracted its fangs, a dribble of blood and saliva slid out from between its thin gray lips. Hector felt frozen in place. Of course, he'd heard people talk about the creature, but he'd always laughed it off. The idea that an alien monster was sucking the blood out of livestock was nonsense. Now, though, there was no denying it. El Chupacabra was real. When we return, Hector faces off against the Chupacabra. Now, back to the story. Hector's heart beat wildly in his chest. The creature standing before him had thick gray skin covered in flaking black scabs. Its fat lower legs ended in feet that were almost bird-like, long, thin talons with thick yellow claws at the end. Hector had heard of El Chupacabra, but he thought it was made up. He never imagined that he'd find one attacking his goats in the middle of the night. Hector felt like he had gone into a trance, almost like he'd been captured by the strange black eyes with their tiny red pupils. Then the chupacabra took a step forward, and the spell broke. Suddenly, everything was happening very fast. Hector swung the shovel, smashing it into the animal's stomach. It gave a guttural hiss and lunged. Hector stumbled back, and the creature seized the moment, darting around him and through the broken door of the barn. Hector ran out behind it, but it was too late. Hector returned to the barn. He knelt down next to the dead goat and examined her lifeless body. There were two large puncture marks in her neck. Each was at least as wide as his big toe. He moved to the end of the barn where the rest of the goats were huddled in fear. When his parents died, they'd left him three things. The one-story farmhouse where he had grown up, the 12 goats that were their only source of income, and a mountain of crushing debt. As he examined the six corpses piled at the back of the barn, his heart sank. A significant portion of his inheritance was gone, just like that. Hector stroked one of the goats, eyes brimming with tears of anger. Don't worry, he said in a soothing voice. It's not going to come back. I'll make sure of it. The chupacabra is actually not the first vampire-like creature to prey on Puerto Rican livestock. In February of 1975, reports of exsanguinated farm animals began pouring in from the western municipality of Mocha. The tabloids seized hold of the story. They dubbed the monster the Mocha Vampire and printed stories, cartoons, and even ribald poetry about it. Though the Mocha Vampire was initially something of a local joke, its attacks were very real. By early March, it had killed almost three dozen animals. 
Officials suggested that the attacks were the work of local pranksters or nefarious land speculators intent on bringing down property values. Investigations were launched, but no one was ever apprehended. Government intervention did little to stem the tide of animal deaths and the accompanying sightings of an enormous, shrieking, bat-like creature. Most cryptozoologists see the mocha vampire and the chupacabra as completely different entities, but it's easy to see how the creatures could be conflated. In both cases, the attacks occurred at the tail end of a devastating drought and coinciding epidemic of dengue fever. What's more, both events happened when the country was experiencing the collapse of a crucial industry. The chupacabra popped up when American factories were moving en masse to Mexico. For the mocha vampire, it was the sugar trade, which had been declining for a while, but didn't die out entirely until the 70s. Given the similarities between the two spates of attacks, it stands to reason that whatever predator was killing livestock in 1975 was probably the same type of animal that struck 20 years later. Whatever it was, the creature was apparently able to drain the blood from dozens of large farm animals in a very short period of time. This alone is highly unusual, as most vampiric animals need to be very small in order to sustain themselves on blood. To this day, there are no known predators with the capacity to kill in this way. Another explanation for the similarities between the circumstances of the attacks is that they're both manifestations of the anxieties that accompany the failure of government. The incidents of the mocha vampire and the chupacabra both involved government officials who attempted to downplay the attacks, brushing them off as the work of feral dogs or snakes. Despite their skepticism, these officials then went on to set up task forces to capture or kill the creature, but were unsuccessful in their efforts. Puerto Ricans had been abandoned by the American architects of their economy, and now by authorities at a local level. Like the thousand economic cuts that led to Puerto Rico's instability, attacks by the creature just kept coming. The numbers grew from dozens to hundreds, and there was nothing anyone could do to stop it. Hector stood at the back of the crowded library. Mayor Sanchez sat behind a folding table at the front of the room, along with the portly, mustachioed chief of police and an elderly town council member who seemed to be on the verge of nodding off. The mayor held up a hand for silence, and the din of chatter fell to a low murmur. He cleared his throat and began to speak. There is a lot of fear and a lot of anger in this room today. I know many of you have suffered significant losses, and I want to assure you that we are going to do everything we can to stop whatever is causing these attacks. A dismissive snort sounded from somewhere in the crowd. A disheveled young man called out, We know what it is. It's El Chupacabra. I found a dead one on my property last weekend, and if the authorities hadn't taken it, I'd be able to prove it. Sanchez rubbed his temples. Mr. Burgos, he said, exhaustion evident in his voice. I saw what you found on your property, and I can assure you it was a dog. As soon as the words came out of his mouth, the room erupted in jeers. 
The noise grew until a broad-shouldered man with skin like old leather stood. That thing killed both my dogs and all my cows, the man shouted. We don't need bureaucracy and red tape. We need action. A few people in the gallery yelled out in approval, and the man continued. I'm not going to wait around for some government yes-man to tell me that a dog drained the blood out of my fully grown Holstein. If they won't put a stop to these killings, I'm going to do something about it myself. The room erupted in cheers. The mayor tried to silence the rowdy crowd, but he had lost all semblance of control. As the police chief began banging on the table, Hector slipped out of the crowded room. As he stepped out onto the front steps of the library, he noticed a fair-haired young woman standing against one of the pillars. He'd seen her inside. She'd been standing next to him, and they had shared an exasperated look. Hector gathered his courage and asked what she'd thought of the meeting. Couldn't have gone worse if they'd tried, the young woman grinned. She introduced herself as Georgia and asked Hector why he'd been at the meeting. He explained that the creature had gotten to six of his goats. He'd hoped the town government might do something about it, but now he wasn't so confident. Georgia looked down at her white tennis shoes. Do you really think it was El Chupacabra? She asked. Hector was about to respond when the broad-shouldered man came storming out of the library. He spotted Hector and slowed. I know you, he said. You're the kid that lost his goats to El Chupacabra. You look strong enough, so are you going to help me kill this thing or what? Hector was a bit taken aback by the man's request, but Georgia took his hand. We both are, she said eagerly. The man laughed at Georgia's eagerness. Fine, we can use another pair of hands, he said gruffly. We'll meet tomorrow at sundown at the bridge over the Rio Canovanillas. Bring a gun. Hector nodded, and the man sauntered off through the town square. As they watched him go, Georgia smiled. Well, at least someone's going to do something, she said. Hector felt better than he had in days. The next evening, a small crowd gathered at the old stone bridge. The river was usually a rushing torrent of muddy water, but the drought had dried it to little more than a trickle. Hector was pleased to see that Georgia was standing at the back of the group. He was even more pleased when she took his arm and insisted that they stick together. The broad-shouldered man introduced himself as Andres. He had brought a large map of the surrounding area, and as people began splitting off into groups, he assigned them spots to search in. Hector and Georgia were the last to approach him. As they did, the man rolled up his map. You two are coming with me, he said. Hector asked where they were going, but Andres just grunted and motioned for them to follow him. Hector and Georgia packed into Andres's battered old pickup truck and sat in silence as he drove them down a bumpy dirt road. As Andres parked the car and got out, Hector recognized the trail that led to the old sinkhole. He shivered. When he'd agreed to hunt down the creature, he hadn't pictured doing it in a cave at night. Hector looked at Georgia, who was happily making her way down the narrow trail. 
He squared his shoulders and followed after her. There was no backing out now. Coming up, Hector and Georgia enter the lair of the Chupacabra. Now, back to the story. Hector and Georgia trailed behind Andres as they made their way toward the yawning mouth of the cavern. When the Chupacabra had killed his beloved goats two days ago, Hector had sworn that he would have his revenge. Of course, he'd pictured something more along the lines of leaving traps in the light of day, not following two strangers into a sinkhole at dusk. Although if he had to do something terrifying, Hector didn't mind being with the confident young woman he'd met at the town meeting. As they scrambled down the rocky sides of the sinkhole, Hector and Georgia got to talking. She explained that she was a scientist who had come to the island for her research on endangered species. She seemed to have a lot of questions about Hector's brush with El Chupacabra. He didn't particularly want to relive that night, but when she smiled at him, he felt like there was nothing in the world he wouldn't do for her. As the trio approached the entrance, Hector ran his fingers over the small pistol in his pocket. He had borrowed it from a friend and was desperately hoping that he wouldn't get the chance to use it. Andres motioned for them to be silent. He brushed aside the curtain of dense green foliage and stepped into the black recesses of the cave. Georgia started after him. When she saw that Hector was hanging back, she took his hand. Shall we? she asked and gestured into the dark cavern. Hector smiled nervously and they ducked inside. Andres was waiting for them up ahead where the cave split in two directions. He nodded toward the tunnel on the right. I'll take this side, you two take the left. We'll meet back up in an hour. Hector nodded. Part of him wanted to ask what they would do if the other didn't show up, but the words seemed to stick in his throat. The sound of footsteps echoed off the walls of the tunnel. Hector could not shake the eerie feeling that something was watching him. He shined his flashlight over the cavern, but all he could see were the stone walls of the tunnel. Georgia tugged on his sleeve and asked if he heard something. Hector listened. At first, he didn't hear anything except the gentle splashing of water. Then it dawned on him that there was no water in this cave. It was the same slurping sound he had heard outside his barn. Hector suddenly wanted to turn around, but Georgia had charged on ahead of him. She clambered over a steep pile of rocks and crouched and beckoned for him to follow. I think it's coming from over here, Georgia whispered. Hector felt a cold sweat spring up on his back as he followed behind her. At the top of the rocks, there was a small opening. When Georgia reached it, she called out to Hector to come shine his light into the recess. Hector's heart pounded as he made his way toward the hole. The stench of sulfur filled the cave, and the wet slurping got louder and louder. Hector climbed up next to Georgia. He took a deep breath and pointed the flashlight into the opening. The beam of light fell on a hideous face. Blood dripped from thin gray lips, 
Black eyes flashed as the scarlet pupils within them expanded. Hector's breath caught in his throat. He instinctively took a step back, and the rock he was standing on gave way. Hector screamed as he tumbled down the pile of rocks, with Georgia close behind. As they slowly slid down, the chupacabra started crawling after them. Hector fumbled with the gun in his pocket, finally managing to fire off two shots in the direction of the creature. It let out a hideous shriek and scuttled back through the hole in the rock. Georgia pulled Hector to his feet. Without a word, they started running back toward the mouth of the cave. When Madeline Tolentino's initial chupacabra sighting was published in a local paper, the phenomenon reached a tipping point. Her description gave a face to the mysterious creature, and dozens of sightings began cropping up. At first, they were contained to Puerto Rico, but once the story made it onto the internet, it went global. In the following years, alleged chupacabra attacks would occur with relative frequency throughout South and Central America and in parts of the American Southwest. The creature was blamed for killing nine pigs in Brazil, sheep and goats in the Mexican state of Jalisco, and as many as 300 animals in the Chilean city of Calama. The chupacabra became a pop culture phenomenon, inspiring music, films, books, and even a few sideshow attractions. In a few short years, El Chupacabra had become a cultural icon to rival cryptid staples like Bigfoot and the Yeti. Then, in the early 2000s, public interest in the legend took a gruesome turn. In rural areas around the American Southwest, farmers began producing chupacabra corpses. These versions of the chupacabra did not look like Tolentino's reptilian biped. They were four-legged animals, usually completely hairless, with rounded, cat-like ears. They often had bluish-gray skin, covered in cracked white scabs, and their dog-like snouts revealed extraordinarily long incisors, like those of a wild boar. Some were killed by farmers when they were found attacking livestock. Others were found dead on the side of the road or near the homes of ranchers. The corpses usually turned out to be dogs or coyotes suffering from a skin affliction called sarcoptic mange, but the people who found them remained convinced of their authenticity. Even after genetic testing, people insisted that the corpses couldn't possibly be known animals. One woman went as far as having hers stuffed and put on display. The conviction that people show in their belief in the chupacabra is a testament to the deep-seated conflicts that spawned the legend. Even outside of Puerto Rico, distrust of authority figures continued to play a critical role in the creature's story. After all, if the government couldn't be trusted to tell the truth about politics or the economy, why would they tell the truth about an alien that they released into the wild? Hector and Georgia agreed not to tell Andres what they had seen in the cave. They knew that the stubborn old man would insist they go after the creature. As far as Hector was concerned, he never wanted to go anywhere near that cave again. He was still shaking when Andres dropped him and Georgia back at the bridge. 
That was a close call back there, Georgia said, though she seemed almost disappointed before her attention shifted back to Hector. You're going to be all right, aren't you? Nothing a stiff drink can't fix, Hector replied, putting on a brave face. Georgia smiled at him. Come on, she said. Why don't I walk you home? Hector's heart had been racing ever since the cave, but as they neared his house, he realized that the pounding in his chest had more to do with excitement than fear. Georgia walked Hector up to his porch, and for a moment, neither one of them said anything. In a stammering voice, Hector started to ask if she wanted a glass of water. Before he could finish his sentence, Georgia leaned forward and kissed him. The kiss only lasted a moment. It was interrupted by the sound of screams coming from the yard behind them. Hector tore himself away from Georgia. He recognized those screams. They were the sounds he had heard two nights ago when the chupacabra snuck into his barn and killed six of his goats. Hector jumped off the porch and ran through the yard to the goat barn. He pulled the pistol from his pocket, flung open the door, and took aim at the creature that greeted him. Hector usually wasn't a very good shot, but this time all three bullets met their mark. The chupacabra gave a low hiss as jets of blood spurted out of its chest. It groaned and keeled over, dropping the bleeding goat that it clutched in its long yellow claws. Its lidless eyes stared up at the ceiling as a bubble of blood emerged from its mouth. Hector turned around to see Georgia standing in the doorway behind him. I did it, he grinned in disbelief. I didn't even stop to think, I just shot. Georgia smiled sadly and said, I know. She pulled out a small, strange-looking pistol and fired it directly into his chest. The room spun as Hector collapsed to the ground. The last thing he saw before everything went black was the black and red eyes of the dead chupacabra. Georgia put down the dart gun and reached for the walkie-talkie stashed in her jacket pocket. She radioed out to the response team and heard a staticky reply. They could be there in half an hour. They were probably still cleaning up from the extraction in the cave. Georgia looked down at the unconscious Hector. The darts were meant for juvenile chupacabras, not adult humans. She didn't know how long it would be before he woke up. She sighed. He really was cute. It was a shame. It's not like they could have dated anyway. Ever since the pregnant female had escaped from the lab, Georgia's life had been one lie after another. It had to be that way, at least until they caught the rest of these things. Maybe she deserved it. Georgia couldn't help feeling that this was a little bit her fault. After all, if she hadn't gotten sick, Greg would never have let the thing escape in the first place. Greg, Hector's goats, and countless other animals would all be alive. Once the extraction team arrived, they would replace the creature with a mangy dog. Hector would wake up in a few hours, confused and completely disoriented. He'd probably convince himself that he'd imagined it, that he'd accidentally shot a dog that he thought was a chupacabra. He'd go on with his life, and he'd try not to acknowledge the little voice in the back of his head. 
the single part of his mind that would always know that he'd faced down and killed a real-life monster. For every chupacabra sighting or story, there are just as many explanations from experts seeking to discount the possibility of its existence. University of New Brunswick comparative physiologist Ben Spears Rush notes that blood-sucking animals need to be very small in order to sustain themselves. Benjamin Radford, who has conducted extensive research into the chupacabra, explains away the bloodless corpses through the concept of liver mortis, a situation in which blood pools in the lowest parts of the body after death, making it appear that higher parts of a corpse are bloodless. Police officers in San Juan, Mexico City, and a number of rural Texas towns all theorized that the attacks were carried out by wild dogs, known to bite the neck of their prey without eating it. All this is good evidence to disprove the existence of El Chupacabra, but might also be missing the point. If this bizarre and otherworldly goat sucker was born from the imagination of Puerto Rican citizens in the 1990s, it just shows the deep impact and guttural fears created by the economic instability they were facing. And the fact that sightings have become as widespread as they have proves that those issues and fears are not limited to Puerto Rico. In the end, what matters about El Chupacabra is not whether it literally exists, but the experiences of the communities that fear it. The livestock in a town begin to die, and there's nothing anyone can do to stop it. The economic welfare of the people dies with their animals, leaving the community in a position of dangerous instability. As the people struggle to understand what is happening to them, a culprit emerges. A heinous, otherworldly monster with unfeeling eyes, dripping fangs, and an insatiable appetite for blood. Thanks for listening to Mythical Monsters. We'll be back next week with a new episode. For more information on El Chupacabra, amongst the many sources we used, we found Governing Spirits, Religion, Miracles, and Spectacles in Cuba and Puerto Rico by Reynaldo Roman, and Tracking the Chupacabra, the Vampire Beast in Fact, Fiction, and Folklore by Benjamin Radford, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Mythical Monsters and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Mythical Monsters, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Mythical Monsters on Spotify, just open the app and type Mythical Monsters in the search bar. I'll see you next time. Mythical Monsters was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Mythical Monsters was written by Zoe Luisa Lewis, with writing assistance by Greg Castro. I'm Vanessa Richardson. 